Turn to Luke 24. Pardon me. Turn to Luke 24 and hold your spot there and also go to Acts 1. Luke 24 and then Acts 1. We'll spend most of our time in Acts, but nine months ago, it was when I walked on the platform here and Joel Brooks introduced me as the new pastor for, for UCF. And my first public act was to read scripture. Here's what I read. What then is Apollos? Or you could say Andy. What is Paul? Maybe Joel. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. And after this, I said that UCF has only one hope. And the hope is not in Joel staying, not in Andy arriving. The only hope this ministry has is Jesus. The one who causes the growth. And that was nine months ago. Here we are. Nine weeks ago, we began looking at the very final days of the ministry of this one who is our only hope. We've studied Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. We looked last week at our co-resurrection, you could say, with Christ. He has enabled us to live the eternal life of the age to come now in the present. So Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, and tonight, Christ ascended. Read with me now, beginning in Luke chapter 24, going to start in verse 44. Jesus has resurrected. He's just had a meal before them to prove that he is of flesh and blood, not a spirit. And he says this These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Turn over to Acts. Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait 
for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, in this, our final gathering before you of this school year, we ask that you would show us yourself. Show us yourself as the risen one, the resurrected one, and the ascended one who sits forever and ever at the right hand of the Father. As the disciples worshipped you when you were taken up, move us to worship you tonight, Lord. And I also pray, that you would speak to us in very specific ways about how you're calling each of us to serve you. Or how you are commissioning each of us. We love you, Lord, and we know that it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that this sermon is preached. And only by that same power that the sermon is heard. Speak your words and cause them to alter us. In your holy name we pray tonight. Amen. When Gerald Bray, professor over at Beeson and at several other places, when he came and spoke at our theological coffee house recently, he told us that the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, they're all Three stages of the one great work of salvation wrought by Christ. And if you were to take out any of the three, you've lost your salvation. Resurrection, crucifixion, ascension. But the ascension is rarely the topic of sermons. At least in, uh, in, the, sermon, in, in the circles that you're probably running in, in Christian faith. This is just a rare topic. This will be the first time for me that I've preached on the ascension. But it is of terrific importance for us as Christians. Before we take a closer look in Acts 1, at this text we've read, we're going to go over three questions about Jesus that the ascension answers for us, just to get a, a biblical overview, a biblical introduction to what the ascension means. So the first question the ascension answers about Jesus is, where is He? Where is Jesus now? We read Colossians 3 last week. Colossians 3.1 tells us exactly where Christ is. 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In Ephesians 1 verse 20, we read that God has seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. 1 Peter 3.22 Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. When Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr, right? When he is about to be stoned by the men who have gathered to hear his testimony, we're told that he gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So where is Jesus? He is enthroned. He is positioned and exalted at the right hand of God the Father. Here's a second question. The sentient answers about Jesus. What is He doing? Alright, Jesus had this earthly Ministry. It was impressive. It was wonderful. And then there's a some degree of grieving. He's gone. And some of us think, oh, that we could just see Jesus and touch Him. We could just have been back in those days. We could have been there with the disciples, heard His actual audible voice, seen and touched Him and felt His skin. Then we could believe. But it is to our advantage that He is gone. So what is He doing now that He's left? The ascension answers it. Ruling. From heaven. That is what he's doing now. Reigning over all rule and authority and power and dominion. With all things under his feet. With angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The Old Testament verse most cited in the New Testament. Is Psalm 110.1. It reads like this. The Lord says to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse is cited more than any other in the New Testament. The significance of it shows us that the right Christ being positioned in the right hand of God is incredibly important. And what He's doing is ruling until all things have been subjugated finally beneath His feet. He's ruling, reigning at the right hand of God. He's also doing something else. Doing something specifically for you and for me. Romans 8.34 tells us that Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews 9.24 Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You and I are benefiting right now in this moment from the ascension of Jesus because He sits at the right hand of God as a mediator. Pleading our case before God the Father. So the ascension tells us where Jesus is, what He is doing there. He's in heaven awaiting the final subjugations of all all things before Him, reigning at the right hand of God, all the while interceding on our behalf. Here's the third question to answer. This is the fundamental question, actually, of all life. Who is Jesus? Here's what the ascension tells us. 
and answer this question. Jesus is the ascended royal Lord of heaven and earth who reigns forever and ever. Amen. That's who He is. Paul writes in Philippians that because Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's every knee. And that every tongue confess. That's every tongue. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's a sense in which God as a father, proud of his son's obedience and faithfulness unto death, has taken him and exalted him to his right hand and given him the name above every name. You know, when my children do something that makes me so proud, there's an instinct of being a father to grab them and lift them up. Gavin walked this week for the first time. Ten months old, the little thing is walking. Little bitty boy, Yeah! exalting my son because he did something awesome. He stepped. When you're dad, you'll know that's pretty special. You don't remember your first steps, but your dad does. And here, Jesus has been lifted up, exalted by his father to the right hand of God. The ascension presents to us Christ seated at the right hand of God, positioned above all authority as the forever king Nothing can stand in the way of this king getting his way. No power will withstand him. He can't be stopped. He can't be tangled with. His reign is now encroaching in on the world as we await the final subjugation of all things beneath his feet. A day comes when worshiping Jesus will not be unique to Christians. No knee will be unbound. No tongue will be lacking in its declaration of Christ's Lordship. The day come awaits. So, Jesus, positioned at the right hand of God in heaven. The ascension answers some of those basic questions for us. But Luke is the only author in the New Testament who tells us how Jesus got there to the right hand of God. And it's important when you study Luke and Acts to not study them as Luke and Acts, but to study them as Luke-Acts, all right? That's Luke hyphen Acts. They go together. I know John is stuck there in the middle, and that's okay. That's, there are good reasons why, but don't let John throw you off. They're volume one and volume two right there. Luke meant for them to be together. There's actually evidence in the early church that the two traveled together. They were circulated together uh, as literature. So... Don't separate them. Study them both together. And the ascension is what hinges the two volumes together. It's this ascension. It closes Luke's gospel. It opens Acts. Our focus will be on the count in Acts 1. Uh, Luke recounts in this first part of Acts 1 the story of the first volume very quickly. That stuff that Jesus did... When he began his ministry, his ministry is still going, according to Luke. There's an end with his ascension. All the things that Jesus did, but he doesn't 
linger back in the good old days when Jesus walked among them. He's got a new story to tell. It's very important. He's excited. By verse 4, he's already on to the new story. The story of what Jesus as ascended Lord is doing to the church by the power of His Spirit. In verse 4, Jesus gathers the apostles together. There are apostles now, by the way, because they're being sent out. Apostle that comes from the Greek word apostolo. That means I send. So, we're going to call them apostles. They're still disciples in a way. He gathers them together, gives them the command, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for something. Wait for the promise of the Father. And that promise is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them. But the apostles, they seem disinterested in this gift. There are more pressing matters on their minds. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has just said to them, look, go and wait. Stay here in the city in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They have other things in their mind. The topic seems to get changed a bit. Okay, Jesus, here we are. You've been resurrected. That's awesome. And man, we are ready to roll this thing. Who's going to mess with us now? You people killed him once. Let's see you try that again. Here he is. They're thinking of a different project. They're thinking of a different mission. Let's do this thing, Master. From verse 3, we know that Jesus has been talking with them after His resurrection about the kingdom of God. They seem to be most interested in the kingdom of Israel. This hope of an immediate earthly ruler like the days of old when David was back as king. That's still in the forefront of their minds. A, a, A messianic reign that's centered in Israel. It's nationalistic. But from what Jesus says in verse 7, the timing of an earthly reign, it's coming, but it's not yet. It still lies in the future. And that time's in the Father's hands, and Jesus has to try to get the discussion back on track. Look, guys, get your heads out of the future, okay? I've got a job for you right now in the present. And that job is unfolded in verse 8. Here we have Jesus' final words before He ascends. Carry some weight to it, right? It's the last words before he departs into heaven. In our community group time here at church on Sunday mornings, we're going through the farewell discourse. The last words of Jesus before his death in John's gospel. And those last words are, it's important. Now Jesus is going to continue speaking. He's still speaking now in this moment as ascended Lord. But when someone is saying something to you before they depart, it's important. I told the community group how on the night that my grandfather died, when I was 16, my grandmother told me months later that at one point in the night, my grandfather became really urgent and said, Andy, I've got to say something to Andy. And it was in the middle of the night, so she didn't call. And I never heard what he had to say to me. Those last words. But we have access to the last words that Jesus shared with His disciples, soon to be apostles, Before His ascension. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the Acts version of the Great Commission. 
the commissioning of these disciples into apostles, it's inseparable from the ascension. Both accounts of Luke of the ascension, it's inseparable from the Great Commission. In John, he's ascended, and just as the Father has sent me, so now I send you, Jesus says. The end of Christ's earthly ministry is only the beginning of His great global universal ministry as ascended Lord through His servants who make up the church. In our service tonight, this is a commissioning service, right? All of us, in some way or another, we are embarking on a new season as summer begins. All of us are being assigned some specific roles within this greater mission of the ascended Christ to make His name known in all the earth. And for some of you, it's going to be playing with kids in Haiti. It may be doing medical missions in Africa. It may be just working a job, being faithful in the daily grind. It may be being a, uh, a good brother, a good sister, a good daughter, a good son. But either way, tonight, in some way, you're being commissioned for some new season of ministry for some new degree of assignment that awaits you. So I want us to look tonight at this text at three exhortations we can gain about being commissioned, about the mission that we're being assigned tonight as we anticipate the summer. And here's the first exhortation that we're going to get from this passage here in Acts. The first exhortation to you is this. Get the mission right. Make sure that you're embarking on the right mission. And it's easy to confuse what that mission is. The disciples, as we've seen, they are struggling with this. In verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Good energy, guys. Wrong mission. You know, you would think they've gotten to a point now where they've arrived somewhat spiritually. They've seen Jesus crucified and resurrected. They're ready to go. They get it now, right? Jesus has just opened their minds to the Scriptures we, we read in Luke 24. They should be able to get it. They are still missing the mission. Their mission is to bear witness to Jesus to the uttermost reaches of the earth. Jerusalem, Samaria, and beyond. But they had their focus on a much more narrow project. They're interested in this, uh, this earthly reign centered in Israel. Guys, it's bigger than this. It's not just Israel. It's Samaria too. It's the uttermost reaches of the earth. So make sure that you are getting the right mission. Jesus has told them to wait, right? And there are many of you in the room waiting on God. For something. Or maybe someone. For some of you. Waiting on God. But. For them. What they assume has been assigned to them. What they assume they're waiting for. Is the wrong mission. That brings us to the second exhortation. Get the timing right. Get the mission right. Get the timing right. Part of the reason these. Now, apostles were waiting on the wrong mission was because their timing was off. God was going to establish an earthly reign of the Messiah. Yes, now it's going to be a bit altered from what they thought. But that did await. 
One day, not now. All things will be subjected beneath the feet of Christ, right? It's going to happen. But the scheduling for these matters, Jesus says in verse 7, that's in God's hand, not for us to know, not for you to know all the details about this. That's up to God. But I have a mission for you now, and it's not that one. Make sure the timing is right. Jesus has a different project underway than what they had assumed. So are you signed up for the right mission, but at the wrong time? Maybe you believe God is calling you to the mission field, but He's calling you to do some training first. Maybe you're leaping off into relationship with someone when God is calling you instead to mature a bit more. You may have received some sort of commission, but your timing is off. Get the timing right. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? No. Not yet. I remember when I was called into ministry. It was after my freshman year of college, right before I started my sophomore year. And during my college years, I served my local campus ministry faithfully. I came to every event. I washed dirty dishes when I found them in the sink. I cut the grass. I filled potholes with concrete. I started helping with the worship team. I began teaching a Bible study with this guy, Joel Brooks. Some girl named Miranda was leading worship at the time. (laughs) After graduation, four and a half years is how long it took. Wait and see if I had an amen from anyone (laughs) taking their time too. After uh, four and a half years, I uh, eventually moved to a city called Birmingham. I started seminary. (sighs) Late nights, (laughs) early mornings, reading and reading, writing and writing, just doggedly at work with those papers and reading that stuff, studying the ancient languages, night after night, day after day, for three and a half years, and then they gave me a degree, Master of Divinity. Now that's a degree <laughs> that can get to your head. I have mastered all things divine. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Connie and Joel and Chuck and others of you on your way, Haley, I know. You probably assume it will, but it won't. Finally, though, they gave that diploma to me. I remember the Beeson Commissioning Service. I was ready. I had put four my time into four lumber yards, all right? I'd worked for two landscaping crews. I'd worked for two different construction crews. Now I'm ready. I got my degree. It's time for me to go and embark on the path of full-time vocational ministry. Didn't happen that way. I dug ditches and mixed concrete for a year. That Master of Divinity diploma stuffed in a closet somewhere in Odom Lane. I don't even know where we kept the thing. It took a year before God gave me my first full-time ministry assignment. Years and years after I received that first calling. Get the timing right. And don't be impatient. Don't be pushy with God about the timing. You need to write this down. Isaiah 5, 18 through 19. This is where the prophet Isaiah pronounces a curse on those who are impatient with God's timing. Woe to those who say, let him be quick. 
Let Him speed His work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One draw near and let it come that we may know it. Hurry up, God. Woe to you, Isaiah says. So be patient. Jacob had to wait seven years and then another seven years for the wives through whom he would fulfill his calling as the patriarch who sired the twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. But for, for some of you to get the timing right, it doesn't require waiting. For some of you, it requires getting off your rear and rushing into the path already set clearly before your Jesus gives the disciples this rousing, world-shaking commission. And then He is taken up into this cloud, into heaven. They see it. you got to picture this scene. It's actually quite funny. I almost laughed when I read it from Acts 1 moments ago. Picture this. Jesus gives His commission. Then He's whisked off into the heavens through a cloud, leaving the apostles their necks craning, alright? Their eyes squinting. Gawking into heaven. (laughs) And then they realize there are these two guys standing next to them. (laughs) Dressed curiously like angels. (laughs) How do you miss that? (laughs) I mean, they're too busy staring off into the sky. Angels right there standing next to them. This is one of those, uh, oh, How long have you been there type moments, you know? Sometimes you're just doing something and you look up and realize, oh, how long have you been there? And there are these angels standing there. As if to say in effect, "Uh, guys, how long are you going to be staring into heaven? Because from what I just heard, you have work to do. And he's coming back. And we know what Jesus said about coming back. He's going to test and see how faithful you were. You've got work to do. There have been times in my life when I've spent so much time gawking at Jesus and His wonder that I've failed to serve Jesus. And I've gotten so caught up in the spiritual highs that I've failed to be obedient to the task at hand. Man, UCF, the worship of them was so awesome that I'm just going to stay here and hang out even though I've got a lot of homework tonight that God's calling me to do with excellence. I hope none of you just gets up in the middle of the sermon and leaves though. In verse 12, we see that the ascension took place on a mountain. It took place in the Mount of Olives. So this is a mountaintop experience. And in Luke 9, we have a very similar scene. There's a cloud. They're on a mountain. Behold two men. The same language occurs there. This is the scene of transfiguration. But at this scene, a dramatic moving scene. If there ever was one. If there's a spiritual high, this is quite a spiritual high. Quite a mountaintop experience. But Jesus, He did not allow Peter, James, and John to stay on the mountain. He led them back down the mountain where there was work to do. A man's son was demonized. They had to cast that demon out. And in verse 12 we see the apostles come down from the mountain. 
time to get to work. And in my spiritual journey, personally for me, the college years, I mean, that altogether, it was a mountaintop experience for me. There were very hard times, definitely. But overall, I had so much sweet Christian fellowship. So many opportunities to be ministered to. And graduation was hard for many of us. Because after that, everything changes. The training program is behind you. Time to get to work. Don't linger in the excitement of the moment. For you who are seniors, don't linger in the excitement of the moment. Gawking at the wonder of what God has done in your life. Gawking at the great joy that you have among your friends. Even the last worship service of UCF. Don't linger in the moment. Get on with the adventure set before you. It's amazing the parallels between the ministry Jesus had to his disciples and the college years. He takes these, most of them probably young people, away from the parents. They left James. James and John left their father Zebedee in the boat, remember? Jesus takes them away, spends about three and a half years with them, pouring into them in an educational program. They call him teacher often, right? Three and a half years, not too far off from the four years that college usually takes, or four and a half. And then he commissions them. They graduate and they're sent out into the world just as you are about to graduate, seniors. You're going to be sent off into the world. Don't linger in the educational program. Get on with the mission. Get the mission right. Get the timing right. Whether you have to keep waiting or go. And then here's the third exhortation on being commissioned. Don't go at it alone. Because you can't. Get the mission right. Get the timing right. Don't go at it alone. All of us are commissioned with these apostles to be witnesses of Jesus throughout the earth. But we all also have very specific roles within that wider, broader mission. But no matter the specifics of your particular calling, the mission entrusted to you is beyond you. It's too grand for a mortal. It's too enormous for a mortal. You can't do it. Nothing less than supernatural help will be required. And this help will be supplied to you by the power of the Spirit of the ascended Christ who administers His mission from His throne in heaven but sends His Spirit to enable us, to energize us, to be faithful to the task. Don't go at it alone because you will fail. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sometimes I give my kids a job and it just seems impossible to them. The other day I told Hayden, Hayden, all that food that your baby brother has just chewed on and drooled on and thrown onto the floor, pick that stuff up and throw it in the trash. I can't do it. And I, when you give Hayden something he can't do, he completely has a breakdown. It's, the worst one to date, I think, was today when my wife took in his film lessons. And we're just, I'm sorry I even brought it up, honey. I told Hayden to pick up all this trash. I can't do that. Hayden, I have had your poop on my hands and caught your throw up in my hand. You can pick up. Your baby brother's food. Do it right now. (laughs) 
But sometimes you give these kids a job at home and it seems impossible. They quail before you at the impossibility of the task. The good thing is, when Jesus gives you a task, He supplies His own strength for you to fulfill it. So be amazed at the commissioning. Be amazed at the path before you, the assignment, but don't be daunted by it. Because Christ will supply His strength. Now, don't be deceived either in thinking that uh, once you feel the power of the Holy Spirit, then you can do it. I tell you, in my life, that's not usually the way it works. It's never worked before I've preached, I'll tell you that. If the Spirit of God has ever worked before I've preached, it is, it is only because I felt at the complete end of all my strength and entirely exhausted and so desperate I wanted it to start snowing outside in April thinking maybe we could cancel this service or maybe Joel Busby will preach tonight. This is the way every sermon begins for me, okay? It's not like, okay, I feel the great power of your Holy Spirit. Whoops, just put water in my lap. That doesn't matter. I feel the power of Christ's Spirit. I'm going to go preach. No, it's, honey, let's just get in the car and go home. Oh, my Lord, send me out of here. This is how they begin, okay? <laughs> so, I'm realizing I should allow more time in my sermons for people to laugh at me. <laughs> Especially my wife and the staff. Uh, anyway, the point is, Jesus supplies you with strength. Don't go at this alone. And just a word of wisdom. The way the strength is supplied, it's not usually dramatic. And you often don't feel it. It's often at, when you're at the very end of your rope. And you've despaired beyond life itself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Only after that that you realize the work of the Spirit is present with you. so get the mission right get the timing right and rely on his spirit refusing to go at this alone it's important to remember that the ascension of Jesus is not the absence of Jesus he is at work busily all around you and he is calling you to join into this great work and he'll enable you to be a part of it there's a lot going on this summer I don't know what half of you are going to be up to. There's going to be all kinds of difficulties before you. But you were enlisted in this great commission, this great task of making the gospel known, making Jesus known in whatever sphere He sends you. We're going to pray for you tonight that God will enable you and give you vision for that task. Before we have our time of prayer and commissioning, we need to worship. If you preach about this century for too long and don't allow time for people to worship Him as the ascended, risen Lord, then uh, you're committing a fallacy. Uh, just as the disciples, when they saw Him ascended, they worshipped Him. That's what we're going to do. We stand together before this resurrected, risen, and ascended Christ. Prayerfully worship Him. And then we're going to pray for you.